Welcome to ISCI's Oceanside Chat, a new LITE. Oceanside Chat is a podcast series that features stories of veterans in the industry that exemplify LITE qualities, which are leadership, innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. In part one of this episode, our guest speaker is Alan Chu, who is the founder and CEO of Enya.ai. He has more than 20 years of experience in building and investing in enterprise startups. Time to get your feet wet in the business world and join us down by the water as we have an Oceanside Chat. Part one, pivot. My name is Helen Wang, and I am a professor at UC San Diego. I would like to welcome everyone to my class, Innovation to Market, at Rady School of Management. Today is October 13, 2021, Wednesday. We have a full class of about 100 students in the classroom for the very first time. I'm excited to record the second episode of the podcast, Oceanside Chat: A New LITE Life in the Classroom. Without further ado, let's give a round of applause to welcome my dear friend and our guest speaker, Alan Chu. Thank you very much for being here in person. I know you have a very busy, busy schedule. So, as a host, we have a tradition for the Oceanside Chat. Is I, as a host, ask you a lot of questions, and you only get chance to ask me one question. So please feel free throughout the time to bring that question up. I like people to get to know you a little bit. I know you have been traveling a lot lately for work. What is your favorite place and why? Paris comes to mind not only because it's so romantic and gorgeous and beautiful, but I started writing poetry a few years ago to exercise a different part of my mind and to help myself become more creative. And I just found that Paris makes me want to write. It's just so easy to write in Paris. I could write. When I wake up in the morning, or 1:30 a.m. after I've just left a crypto party and walking back to the hotel, just anywhere in the city is inspiring. Wow, that's fantastic! Now we know the secret where you get inspiration. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. My next question will be: you know, if you imagine your life as a book and you are the author, so how many chapters have you written, and do you like the book so far? Well, I feel like I'm still writing the prologue, just getting started. We're all immortals, really. Our physical life on on this planet is limited, but our souls live on. And so, compared to eternity, all of us are just getting started. Whether you're like a baby or 100 years old, I think I'm still writing the prologue. Oh, that's wonderful. But for the part that you have already written so far, do you want to share with our students? Absolutely. I was born in Hong Kong and grew up partly there, partly in Vancouver, Canada. I was a pretty introverted kid, actually. Especially moving from a Cantonese-speaking place, an English-speaking place, where I had to learn a new language, new culture. I had no idea what the rules of hockey were or basketball.、I、had to learn all that. Of course, quickly learn how to swear in different languages. That's part of the experience. Fortunately, I got into electrical engineering, then was really drawn to tech startups. So I jumped into tech startup after I graduated, and that company went public in three and a half years after I joined. That inspired me to get into entrepreneurship, and just never looked back. Now it's it's not a smooth sailing, right? The next company, the next startup I worked on, outright failed after two years. So two years of work down the drain. Then I worked on another startup. This time it was decently successful. Got acquired by a U.S. tech company, and by that time I had spent more than ten years in the tech industry and found that everybody I knew was in tech. I was like, but the world is a big place, right? I wanted to broaden my horizon, so I applied and got into the Stanford Business School and decided to move to Silicon Valley. As a result, and after the GSB, I got recruited by a faculty member to join his venture capital firm called XC Capital. Earlier on in my career, I was interested in venture capital and met a few. VCs and asked them what their job was like, and also met someone who has studied the industry. And she outright told me I wasn't smart enough to be a VC, and that kind of stung. 
I was quite proud to eventually prove her wrong. After spending a few years as a full-time investor, I got bored. I missed the days of, of shipping products and building companies. So I decided to jump back to an operating role. First started with helping on portfolio companies, eventually founding my current one with a Stanford engineering professor, and that's Enya. And after a few pivots, we became a blockchain infrastructure company. We've just launched the mainnet of our Ethereum scaling solution called Boba Network. It's gotten a lot of attention from the industry, lots of excitement and momentum behind it. Oh, that's fantastic. Is that the why that you're a superhero in the movie? As I said, I, I was a pretty shy and introverted kid growing up, so wasn't really comfortable with publicity or even public speaking. But in crypto, mobility is very important, right? People get into crypto for primarily three reasons. One is to make money. Two is to have fun. Three, they believe in decentralization. So that's probably why we chose to call our product Boba Network, because it's a fun name. People love bubble tea. Who doesn't like bubble tea, right? You always smile when you drink bubble tea. So we want people to smile when they use our product too. Our community has really warmed up to that brand and they like to have fun. So they started making all kinds of memes around bubble tea and also Boba Fett. They've created you know, Telegram sticker packs with Boba Fett drinking bubble tea, Baby Yoda drinking bubble tea. As I started promoting our project more and more, they wanted to have fun with my face. So they started putting my face on The Rock, Gladiator, Iron Man, He-Man, all kinds of characters. and. I'm like, okay, this is fun, kind of enduring. I'll just roll with it. I see. So, so far, what is your favorite character? Iron Man, for sure. Because as an engineer, I love gadgets. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Could you tell us some of the success, some of the hardship that we may gone through as a venture? It's been three years since Jan, my co-founder, and I started the company together. And it's been a circuitous path to get to where we are today. When we first started the company back in 2018, we had wanted to do something around the intersection of data and blockchain to begin with. And so we started getting ourselves really immersed in the blockchain space, met a lot of people. But then crypto winter came, we remember. Bitcoin crashed 90 plus percent, everybody crashed. And suddenly nobody cared about crypto and blockchain anymore. So we decided let's put the blockchain angle aside for now but still focus on data, especially data privacy, cryptography, as opposed to crypto. Eventually, we thought we had figured out a business by using cryptography to create super private diagnostic DNA tests. We had signed up one of the top hospitals in Asia to be our distribution partner and getting the attention of other top private hospitals in Asia as well. And we thought, all right, great, this is a pretty solid starting point. But then COVID hit. Nobody cared about DNA testing. I mean, people were focused on survival and all the hospitals shifted their resources to dealing with COVID. The business that we thought we had found completely disappeared. And we had eight months of funding of runway left in our company. So we quickly cut all the expenses that we could cut and had to figure out like, what do we do? Because we had no idea how long COVID was going to last. So we pivoted our technology to develop a privacy-focused COVID symptom tracker and fortunately found an emerging mobile social network also happens to be in crypto. And they have a really vibrant user community. And we leveraged their platform for distribution to launch our COVID symptom tracker, which took off and grew to something like 13 million users in 91 countries. Pretty amazing. And based on that traction, we were able to raise more funding, extended the life of the company. But then eventually, COVID is going to end. So we still need to figure out oh, what do we do after COVID. We took the core of our technology, which is still cryptography, specifically the ability to analyze post-encryption data. And we started talking to the military. They deal with a lot of sensitive data. They certainly don't want the data to be leaked. And in addition, they would not want there to be any possibility of adversaries being able to inject false data into the data stream and mislead them and lead them to make wrong decisions. So we started having those conversations and got into the incubation program run by Northrop Grumman, a major defense contractor. 
But then at about the same time, those early relationships that we built in crypto started coming back as you know, DeFi summer happened last year and crypto prices started rebounding. And we came across an opportunity to take over a crypto project that was widely considered dead. The token associated with that project is one of the most widely distributed tokens. It's listed on all the major exchanges. So there's a lot of value in that token asset, even though the project itself had run out of steam. One of our friends in the industry, his firm acquired this project and then invited us to take it over, to turn it around. So we, we decided this is a pretty interesting opportunity. So we came up with an arrangement that would cap our downside, but allow us if we're successful, then it will be a, a home run for the company and also for this firm that invested in acquiring that project. And that's eventually what became Boba Network. Wow, what an incredible story. The ups and downs in the middle of COVID and you pivot. It seems like you pivot a couple of times. Yeah, you got to survive long enough to get lucky, first of all. And two, you got to be super adaptable. When you start a company, the default outcome is death, right? Because you don't have anything. You haven't found product market fit. There's no business, no revenue. So if nothing happens, then you're just going to run out of money and the company disappears. From day one, you're in survival mode, trying to figure out like, what's going to work. Of course, you have some thesis around what might work, and you're trying to validate or invalidate your thesis as quickly as you can before you run out of runway. If the first thesis doesn't work, you've got to pivot and test the second one, third one, until you find something that works. And that's what happened here. Our pivots are pretty amazing, especially the pivot from defense to crypto. I mean, you're talking about from one of the most secretive, hierarchical, structured industry to one that is emerging, chaotic, completely open, everything is open source, and you're dealing with people who might not show their real identity ever. From an industry structure, industry market dynamics, and cultural standpoint, it's about as big a pivot as you can imagine. Well, so it sounds like the technology itself is pretty amazing. But what really makes the technology work is the vision, the people, the imagination and flexibility you would offer to utilize that technology. Absolutely. Everything comes down to the people in the end. I think I'm very fortunate that my, my co-founder is also super flexible. He's not a, a typical professor even by Stanford standard. He rolls up his sleeves, he still pushes code every day, and he's been able to pivot our product and technology vision along the way as we change our business direction. That's pretty amazing. So that would be one advice I would share with all of you is over the years I've learned that you really want to optimize for the quality of people that you end up working with. Because one, you become the average of the five closest people that you spend time with. And when you start working, who are the people that you spend the most time with? Your coworkers. So make sure you're working with interesting people people who challenge you and make you grow. And if you're lucky, like I was in my first job out of college, I was working with a lot of amazing people who pushed me and helped me grow. I was doing really well in school, top student graduating from my class. But my colleagues from my first job showed me how much more, a lot more, that I still needed to learn. They taught me how to write code defensively, how to develop software systems that are resilient, industrial grade would never go down, on and on and on. I learned about how to build companies from our CEO, and that gave me a very solid foundation to build on. So regardless of what you do, whether you join a startup, start a company, join a large tech company, or go to grad school, pay attention to the quality of people that you end up working with. That's amazing. I think the people element of a successful venture, you know, it's got to be very important. So now you're the CEO of the company and you're the co-founder as well. So what is your number one responsibility as a CEO? Never want to run out of money. <laughs> Keep holding the vision of the company and not just for the business, the product and technology, but culture. 
what do we stand for as a company and what kind of environment are we creating for our team? Because the culture that we have within our company will naturally project outward towards our community and our users and our partners. What makes or break the culture comes from the people, right? So pay real close attention to who I bring onto the team, who we bring onto the team, who we put into leadership positions, because that sends a very strong statement to the rest of the organization, what you're celebrating, what you value. If you find someone who's not a fit, make those decisions quickly and part ways. It's better for both sides. So I hear both the visible part of it, which is money, the fund, right? Number one priority for the CEO to make sure that's healthy. The number two seems like the invisibles, the culture, the people. How do you get the right people together, right culture moving forward with a vision? That's amazing. Well, that's a lot of work, but you know, that's very, very critical for the longevity of the organization. It's also what makes the job fun. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you've been traveling a lot for work. Why do you have to travel and what are the purpose of those trips? During COVID, I mean, all the meetings were online, virtual, video. And what I found is these meetings are okay for initial introductions, for maintaining existing relationships, but they're insufficient for really building new relationships, new partnerships. It still could be done, but slow. So when the world started opening up, I still remember considering whether to go to Miami in June for the Bitcoin conference. And I thought, well, we're not really in the Bitcoin world, we're in the Ethereum world, should I go, should I not? But over time, more and more people were asking me whether I would go or not. So I thought, all right, I'll just go and see what it's like. Wow, what a difference. I was able to unstuck a, a lot of partnership conversations by meeting with people in person. And also because we've just been isolated for so long, even in a business settings where people in the past would be mostly transactional. That very first in-person conference after a long time felt very different. Like the whole industry was just happy to be together in person again. By going to Miami, I found out that there was something cool happening in Paris in the following month around Ethereum. So I went there and again, the same experience happened. It really pushed a lot of our partnership conversations forward. It really accelerated our growth, which is why I've been traveling more and more. I see. It seems like the partnership, the in-person, the relationship, the maybe building the trust, that really worked. That might sound counterintuitive, especially for an industry like crypto, where yes, on one hand, a lot of times you may be working with people who may not even show their real identity, like their Anon, forever. When they speak at industry conferences, they speak through video without showing the face and with the voices modified. But on the other hand, there are a lot of projects that are led by known people. And if these projects are successful already, they might be, their code might be managing billions or tens of billions of crypto assets. As a result, you can imagine how many scammers would try to partner with this project to take advantage of them. So they become, over time, more and more cautious about who they truly partner with and who they can trust. And so it makes a real difference when I show up repeatedly so that they get to know me as a person, as a human being, to build that trust. Wonderful. So if you're okay, I'm going to pivot a little bit because you have so many more stories and experience that you could share with us. So you're the co-president for Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs. Could you tell us a little more about that? Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs is an alumni club. So we're part of the Stanford Alumni Association. It really was created as a way to help build the, the Stanford alumni community by bringing together Stanford alums who are passionate about the startup ecosystem, who are investing actively in startups or building startups or care about using technology for good, for the good of the society. It's been around for 10 years now. We've grown to more than 2,000 members just in the Bay Area. There are now affiliated chapters around the world in India, the UK, and around Southern California, LA, San Diego. 
it's become a global syndicate of Stanford Angel alums who are investing in startups and also building startups. Wow, so you have a community that when you have an idea, you bring to that community and the community is well connected because of alum relationship. And so people pitch in that kind of event or? We have a pitch event every two months featuring roughly eight to 10 companies usually. SoFi is actually one of the first companies that we backed. It's now uh, roughly around $16 billion last I checked. Founded by three of my classmates, actually, out of the GSB. I raised funding from the Stanford Angels community as well for my company. Wow, wonderful. That sounds like a beautiful story. Come from the community and give back to the community the same way. You were also a partner at Exceed Capital, so you're absolutely on the investment community side and looking at the you know different opportunities. If you combine your expertise at Stanford and as a partner at Exceed Capital, as well as now you're the CEO of this company, you must have received a pitch and give pitch on both sides of the table. So could you share your perspective about both sides and what our students should be aware of that? First of all, you've got to have a really pithy headline that grabs people's attention. I'm not saying that you need to be hyperbolic, but it needs to succinctly capture what you're building and why it's compelling. In our case, for Boba Network, we tell folks we make Ethereum faster and cheaper. And that's because Ethereum, while a lot of people use it, it's expensive and it's slow, right? So immediately we've established our relevance. Now, depending on the audience, I'll add a little bit more to it because we're not the only player that's making Ethereum faster and cheaper. So if I'm speaking with an investor who's knowledgeable about the space, they'll add on a little bit more about how we're different than our competition. But it's just a few words. You want to get the core idea across because everyone has very short attention span, as you know, especially investors, because put yourself in their shoes. They get pitched all day long, like literally all day long. That's their job. Assume that you only get about 10 seconds of their attention. That's a shot. And if you can't get their attention in the first 10 seconds, they'll start tuning out. They will still stay with you for the conversation to be polite, but you've already lost them. So you got to grab people's attention in the first 10 seconds, which is really hard, I realize. So there's a lot of value in testing how you pitch yourself, how you get across your core idea and why you're the best person to make it happen in the first 10 seconds. When I fundraise, especially like during COVID, for example, in the early days of COVID, it was hard to fundraise. Later on, it became much easier. I joined this thing called Lunch Club, and I would keep saying that I, I'm fundraising, I'm fundraising so that I could get connected to investors. Not necessarily because I want to fundraise directly from them specifically, but just to test different ways of telling the story. By jumping on these video calls, I could watch their facial expressions and see what's resonating, what's not, what's grabbing people's attention. I would have a lot of these video calls throughout the week to test different ways of telling the story until I started seeing a pattern of a way of pitching that was resonating. And that's when I started using that narrative with investors that really care about that wanted to bring on. So practice, experiment a lot. Do you actually know who are the audience before you go into the room? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. So you have to do your homework? Always. Do they know a little about you already, the background of Alan, this company, or they don't know much? It depends on how diligent they are. Of course, the more homework that they have done, the more respect I will have of them. But I also realize everyone is busy and not everyone would have time to do a lot of homework on what we're about. So I'm always prepared to spend 10, 30 seconds to really give a concise summary of where we're from. If they've done some real homework and come prepared with really thoughtful questions, definitely I'll put them higher on the list of investors that I would like to partner with. So it's very interesting. I feel like less is more. This is a classic user case. <laughs> Not to put you on the hot seat, could you maybe demonstrate to our students that how do you normally do that, the pitch to the investor as a CEO of uh, Enya? 
So what we're building is Boba Network, an Ethereum scaling solution that makes it faster and cheaper. But not only that, we enable developers on Boba to do more, to do things that they can't do on other networks. They become superheroes. Okay, so I captured, I'm not an investor per se, but I captured a few keywords, right? Faster and cheaper and more. Yeah, and those are the keywords I want them to remember. Yeah, and actually everybody understood those, right? Very tangible value. Yeah, keep things simple and stay away from jargons. I see. Very interesting. Thank you very much for sharing that. You have been in this investment community a lot. Time, uh, you kind of investing and building those enterprise entrepreneur venture as well. What has worked for you sitting on the bench of an investor? Like with all this experience you had, what has worked, what hasn't when entrepreneur come to you to pitch? The pitches that work best are the ones that start with a very concise headline about why it's compelling. And then they expand on it in a very easy to follow logical way. That makes you feel like success is inevitable. And they embed the personal story in the narrative such that you feel like this is the best entrepreneur to make this happen because there's strong founder market fit. So these are often the best pitches. You want to bring your investor audience on a journey. Imagine you're the director of a Hollywood movie. You start with the pitch with a trailer that really grabs people's attention so that they want to spend more time with you and actually follow through the story. And then you take them through this journey, ups and downs, the challenges, the immense challenges that your customers have to deal with and why you're the best team to come to the rescue or the only team that could come to the rescue to save them and create this incredible business that the investors would be fortunate to be a part of. You want to project a sense of inevitability. This is happening with or without them and make them want to feel like they don't want to miss out. They want to be part of the journey. So create a scenario for them to see themselves in that and make it work that way. Yeah. I see. Perfect. Thanks for listening to Oceanside Chat. We hope you enjoyed our show. Stay tuned for part two of this episode. We'll see you later.